0: Good morning again, Redeemer. If you have your Bibles, uh, I'd invite you to open them up to Psalm 84. And if you have an iPad or a cell phone, feel free to have the glowing light uh, in front of you. I'm cool with it. Psalm 84. To the choir master, according to the Gittith, a Psalm of the sons of Korah. Of the sons of Korah, we believe from 1 uh, Chronicles, Are uh, those men set apart to be doorkeepers and to be janitors uh, in the temple. So this is told from a perspective of one who worked around the temple. How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts! My soul longs, yes faints, for the courts of the Lord. My heart and flesh sing for joy to the living God. Even the sparrow finds a home, and the swallow a nest for herself where she may lay her young at your altars, O Lord of hosts, my King and my God. Blessed are those who dwell in your house, ever singing your praise. Blessed are those whose strength is in you and whose heart are the highways to Zion. As they go through the valley of Baca, they make it a place of springs. The early rain also covers it with pools. They go from strength to strength. Each one appears before God in Zion. O Lord God of hosts, hear my prayer. Give ear, O God of Jacob. Behold our shield, O God. Look on the face of your anointed. For one day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. For the Lord God is a sun and shield the Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold from us, from those who walk uprightly. O Lord of hosts, blessed is the one who trusts in you. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the privilege of gathering here as your people. And as we gather in safety and sunlight in security, without persecution, our hearts ache for your church across the world who don't have these luxuries and so father we do pause and pray for them that you will give them joy and peace and hope and love and father as we here uh, have this beautiful time to unpack the riches of your word your gospel would you allow us Lord to not be hearers but but hearers and doers Help us, Lord, to not be hearers alone, but those who believe and rest and trust and put our hope in you. Would you forgive the sins of this man here standing before your people? Would you build them up that your name and your gospel would be adorned? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So um, on some days I make it home around 530. And that's usually the time that dinner's being prepared and i walk in the door and uh, say, hey, what do I need to do? How do I, what do you need me to do? And, and in the background, um, our TV is on NBC. And around 5.30, uh, Lester Holt comes on and, and we listen or either watch the NBC nightly news. And there's a shape to that news uh, program The first 22 to 25 minutes, uh, it's a recounting of what's happening in our world and in our country. And then the last five to eight minutes, uh, it's usually a different flavor, a different tone. And so I'll just give you sort of some highlights of what was uh, on the news program this week alone, the first 22 to 25 minutes, you can go check me if you want. But the program comes on and he talks about COVID-19. And the variant and the number of cases and the vaccination rate and which states lead the nation with COVID transmission what COVID is doing to educators and school and children and then it pivots and talks about the geopolitical crisis in Afghanistan and images of thousands of people trying to get out of a war-torn country and then it pivots and it looks at natural disasters what's happening in Haiti and what's happening in California with wildfires. And then there's a, a story about a sex scandal from some guy in the royal family or some bad comments made by a guy who was aspiring to be the next host of Jeopardy. And that first portion of nightly news, it, it's, it's kind of bad news all the time, everything that's wrong with the world. And then there's a shift, the last five to eight minutes, It's inspiring America. And during that shift, during that little segment, at the end of the news program, it's always upbeat. It's always something not grimy and gritty and hard to look at. And so, for example, this week, you get that program with all of this bad news and then there's a special story of this uh, scholar. He was a a scholar at one school and he was a, a student athlete and he was paralyzed by playing football. Well, three years later, this guy who was paralyzed is in a robotic suit, walking across the stage, getting his diploma. And that's inspiring to see, right? Or how about ever since COVID hit a year and a half ago, we have not been able to send our veterans for the veterans tour, the first honor flight. It's when our country honors veterans. And we get a bunch of them together and we roll out the red carpet. We fly them to DC. We put them in a hotel. We give them free access to museums. We give them free food. And these veterans get to sit down and grieve together and rejoice and remember. And they collectively talk about how good it is for their souls to be with other veterans. It's uplifting or about this kid who has brain cancer, who is fighting it. And one of the ways his families learned to encourage him was to, in the window of his hospital room, they put post-it notes. And it started as a smiley face. One post-it note, another post-it note, another post-it note, and like six of them smiling. And their treat was to open the window. And this kid sees this smiley face of post-it notes, and he's encouraged. But then it it caught on like wildfire that that people in hospital rooms across from his, outside of the window, everybody began to put post-it notes on their windows and they got really creative. They started to make flowers and Batman and Superman. So now all of a sudden this kid is battling cancer and every day they're pulling the curtain back. And this kid gets up and he is smiling because people out there are thinking about me. And then the program goes off. It starts with a lot of bad news, what's wrong with the world? And then there's hope at the end. I think that's intentional. Whoever is building that program out, they're doing that, right? I know you're like, what does all of this have to do with Psalm 84? Here it is. Book 3 of the Psalms begin with Psalm 73. And they are all written by Asaph. And then you get to Psalm 84. And Korah responds to Asaph. But well, what's what's happening in book three from Psalm 73 to 83? That's important. Listen, my feet had almost stumbled. My feet has nearly slipped. I was envious of the prosperity of the wicked. So the wicked are prospering, Psalm 73. Psalm 74, why are you angry at us, O God? We are the sheep of your pasture. Look, your foes are roaring in the midst of your meeting place. Your sanctuary is on fire. They have profaned the dwelling place of the Lord. They have brought it down to the ground. How long before you arise, O Lord, and defend your cause? Psalm 75, the earth, it totters and all of its inhabitants, Psalm 75. How long, O oh Lord, the nations have come into your inheritance. They have defiled your temple. Jerusalem is in ruins. They have given the bodies of your servants to the birds for food. How long will you be angry at us forever? Psalm 83. Oh God, do not be silent. Keep peace or be still. Your enemies have made an uproar. Those who hate you raise their heads. They want to wipe us out as a nation. Y'all hear the theme? in in book three, the first 10 Psalms written by the same guy, Asaph, and it's telling a, a ugly story of what's happening in Israel and what's happening in the world and what's happening to them as God's people as they are enduring God's discipline. And then it's as if the arranger of the Psalms, he says, okay, we got all of that. And that's hard to watch, but let me give you something hopeful. And it's what you read. That's what we read this morning. It's fitting in a way that nightly news is fits. Bad news, bad news, bad news, bad news. And something hopeful just bursts on the scene. This psalm is placed here. In my opinion, to remind God's people who were perhaps living in a foreign land, when you read all of what's happening in book three, who were waiting for renewal and restoration, that's Psalm 85, that God would meet them in the waiting. And that he would satisfy their deepest longings while they waited. And that he'd eventually send them a king to bring them home. That's how I think it's fitting in the Bible. What does this mean for us? Here's the first thing I want you to see we, and I'm speaking of us in the room right now, like them, are in a period of waiting. What I don't want us to do is to divorce what's happened in Psalm 73 through 83 and be like, yeah, Pastor L, that's just a history book. That ain't really true for us. We good. We on this side of the cross. No, that's not true. We are on this side of the cross, but we are pilgrims. We are waiting. We aren't home yet. And here's how I know we're not home yet. Are you experiencing this beautiful fairy tale ending that the scriptures say is going to happen, where we will behold the face of Christ, where we will weep and suffer and sin no more? Are we there right now? No. Did you have a sinless week this week? No. Did your children perfectly honor you this week? No. Did you see the risen actual Jesus this week? No. Were you perfectly quick to listen and slow to speak this week? Were you unable to sin this week? Did this entire earth come and fall prostrate before Jesus with angels and archangels and creatures that we can't even describe this week? No. Did you, did the evening news only report good news this week? Could you not find a single person dying or crying this week? Did you see the tree of life this week? These are all indications that you and I aren't home, we're like them, we're waiting on God to do some future and glorious work. And so like God's people in Psalm 73, don't we see evil prospering in the land while God God lovers seem to be last? Don't we, like the people in Psalm 75, see the earth tottering? Isn't that what we're seeing unfold in Afghanistan right now where people are trying to get out of a country and are getting crushed in landing gear? Don't we see the shift in power? The earth is tottering and its people Psalm 78, we see God's people, we hear about God's people experiencing persecution, and we persecute each other over masks. Like God's people in Psalm 74, we can be unrepentant, and we can endure his discipline. Our confession of faith says this, God's people will persevere because of the immutability of the decree of election. That means because God has chosen you before the foundations of the earth, you will finish at the end. That's because his decree of election is immutable. It's unchangeable. And this flows from the free and unchanged love of God, the father, the work of Christ, the indwelling of the spirit. And then here's the but, but Through temptation of Satan and the world, the prevalence of our own corruption that remains in us, and the neglect of the means of our preservation, we Christians may fall into grievous sins and continue for a time where we incur God's displeasure, and we grieve his spirit, and we become deprived of some measure of his grace and comfort, and we have our hearts hardened and our consciences wounded, and we hurt others and bring temporal judgments upon ourselves. You see, I think when we read what's happening to them, we think, okay, God was just mad at them. He kicked them out the land and we think that can never happen to us. Wrong. God disciplines those he loves. If he did not do that, he would be treating us as bastard children. Therefore, sometimes we go through things as Christians And the real problem, beneath the problem, beneath the problem, it's us. And we are experiencing the consequences of our behavior. And we are experiencing his temporary discipline, which for a season it hurts, but it produces the fruit of righteousness for those who have ears to be trained by it. And so let us not look at Psalm 73 through 83 and somehow think that this is archaic. No, when we hold to our idols, when we profane the Lord's day, when we covet and we steal and we lie and we place identity and purpose and meaning in created things and not the creator. And we stay there for a season of time. Make not the mistake that we will not reap what we sow. And so we are like them redeemer We are living in what I would call the acronym, the dump. D-U-M-P. D, we can endure God's discipline right now. U, the world we live in is unstable. M, martyrdom and persecution still does happen to God's people. And P, we see the prosperity of the wicked. And we experience or can experience all of this right here, right now, because we're not home yet. And when we get home, the dump is over with. There is no prosperity of the wicked. There is no discipline of the Lord. There is no instability or the instability of the world. All of that is gone, but while we're here right now, we're more like them in Psalm 73 than Psalm 83 than we think. That's my first point. Second point, our deepest longings should be like theirs as we wait. My second point, so I believe that what we're reading in psalm 84 based on whoever arranged the psalms and why they put it there what you're getting is the heart right the in the inner parts of the person what the discipline and what the instability and what the martyrdom and persecution and what the prosperity of the wicked what you're getting in psalm 84 is actually what all of those things that preceded has worked in the soul of the person whose psalm that we're reading all of a sudden what we're getting a glimpse into i think are the righteous affections for those who have been living in the dump and so here's what i mean I think the Psalms are like a thermostat and a thermometer, and they're different with a thermometer. Right. You put that in your kid's mouth and it reads what's their core temperature, their body temperature It's giving you a reading. And then a, a thermostat works the other way. It sets the temperature for the room. And the Psalms, I think, do both. That what we're getting here is when you put this thermometer in the mouth of this worshiper, what you're getting are the affections that come out because they're living in the dump. But here's what I think is hard. When we read it, that the Psalms can also and should also, when we read them properly, they should also regulate our affections. They should awaken righteous longings. So that's why I say that what we start to see him longing for, which is produced by life living in the dump as they wait. These are actually good affections. And and for some of you, it's going to give word to what we feel. And for others, when you see this, it should compel you to be like, wow, I ought to be feeling these things and I don't. So what's going on with my heart and my soul that I don't? That's why John Calvin says that the psalms are the anatomy of the soul. There is not an emotion in them which, can, which one can be conscious of that is not here represented as a mirror. So, what does this psalmist long for? And these are righteous longings. The first thing he longs for is divine satisfaction in the presence of God. I'm of the opinion that this person who had been in the temple or working around the temple is for a season separated from the temple. Hence this longing, right? He says, my soul longs. That, that, that word for long is from this word that could mean starve, right? You're starving when you don't have the food. And so what he says here is my soul is starving. There is distance between me and the courts of the Lord. Then he plays this game of would you rather. Look it down at verse 10. He says, Lord, would I rather spend a thousand days in Palo Alto, or or one day near your altar. Would I rather spend a thousand days in the Grand Tetons or one day in your temple? And here's what he says, Lord, I so desire you that if somebody gave me an all-expense paid, five-star vacation, and I could stay there a thousand days And you just gave me one day, just one day to let me push a broom in the temple. I'm choosing to push the broom in the temple. Then he remembers this image. And again, I think this imagery is only of a person who works around the temple. It's in verses three through four. Sidebar. So occasionally the staff will come in here and shoot videos for you. Or we'll come in here and pray. I'll come in here and sit down and just read and pray. And, and there are just things that we see as staff that the average redeemer member will probably miss. I can tell you about the woodpecker who picks holes around the steeple up there. I hear him and I see him. Our deacons can tell you about the bees that build hives in the steeple. Our deacons can tell you about the plumbing and how many paint colors we have in this building and where the stains are. I mean, I could tell you that there are some chips right up here, right? I can, you know, really, we can tell you that because like this is our space, this is our place, we spend time here. The man who wrote this, he remembers a little bird's nest that's in the temple. He says, even the sparrow, you know, you know what sparrows are in Jesus' day? Jesus said, you can get two of them boys for a penny. You can get five of them for two pennies. A sparrow. We would just look at this and not see it. And whoever's writing this says, no, I've been there. I can tell you about the sparrows and the nest that they have, and this mother bird, how they find refuge in your altar. Oh Lord, I wish that I were like that bird, that I could hide in your altar and be safe. In other words, what this psalmist is writing about is not just the delight of the building, he's delighting in the refuge and the presence of the Almighty. Where heaven and earth met in the temple, where prayers ascended to the throne of God, and there was tactile smoke in the temple. And there was tactile animals to touch so that you could see that atonement was, being hap- was happening. And you could, in Psalm 73, be dismayed by the world, but then you go into the temple and all of a sudden you behold God and now God turns your world that was upside down, right side up, that what he longs for is the presence of the Lord. He wants strength. Notice it says, blessed are those whose strength is in you in whose heart are the highways to Zion. It doesn't take long as a Christian living in the dump that human willpower isn't enough to endure to the end. Waiting on God is tough. I have a hard time waiting on the person in front of me on their phone at the traffic light, right? So how I think I'm going to just practice this waiting on God, right? Our idols don't die easily. Our hearts forget. Our habits are hard to break. The spirit is willing and the flesh is weak. And I understand why. He says, Lord, blessed are those whom you strengthen. I was meeting with a fellow pastor not long ago, and we were talking about just the pandemic and how you pastor people and There's no seminary class for this. There's no book for this, and we were rejoicing and also grieving. And he shared his man. I've just grown concerned about my older demographic in our population. And I said, "Talk to me. What do you mean?" He says, "Man, my retirees—the ones who retire." whose homes are paid for, whose kids are out of the house, whose cars are paid for, and they have savings galore. Man, they were rocks and pillars in our church. And now they're nowhere to be found. He says, I worry, will they make it to the end? And I've seen the other side of that as a campus pastor. When you disciple your kids, you pray with your kids, you bring your kids to church, and it's like, man, they step on a college campus. And I'm like, man, who are you? Who have you become? What I'm getting at is it doesn't matter if you're 18 or 19 and you're stepping off to campus. It doesn't matter if you're 65 and retired and your bank account is plush and you have no debt. I think what the psalmist would say is, wherever you are on the journey as a Christian, you will need a strength outside of yourself to make it home. And he actually says, blessed are those whose strength is in you, who have roads in their heart, and in the Hebrew, the, The highways to Zion is not there. It's literally who have roads in their heart. And here's what I think he's trying to communicate. Blessed are those who are waiting in the dump, who may be scattered wherever we are across the world, but there's a highway right here. And we know where true north is. And true north for us is has been and will always be Zion. He says that person who has this highway wherever they are that leads back to you, your temple, your throne, your presence, that person is the one that's ready to be strengthened. Now why would you need strength? Look at verse 6. They go through the valley of Baca. Now look y'all, we can't find that valley. Some say it's a tree that, in this tree, drips sap. Right? Most people say that that Hebrew word for baka comes from the Hebrew word to cry or to weep. Now it makes sense. What the psalmist is saying is that as we wait, we will walk on a trail of tears. Our lives will be full of grief and sorrow and sadness, we will bury children, marriages will be threatened, we will be unable to conceive, we'll endure loneliness, we'll care for aging parents, we'll watch our own bodies break down. We have a reservoir of tears that our own stand by until those bitter moments come. In pain, we have children. We will toil by the sweat of our brow. From the dirt, we were created and back to the dirt, we shall return. And so when he prays for strength, strength to walk through the valley of the tears, strength to persevere until the end, we ought to be praying that too. Lord, give us strength. And then he longs for safety and supply. He says, The Lord God is a sun. The Lord God is a shield. Now, why would he liken the Lord to a sun? He is not saying the Lord is the sun. This is imagery, this is metaphor. In the way that the sun lights the earth, in the way that the sun gives energy for photosynthesis so that we can have food, in the way that the sun takes what is dark and exposes it, in the way that the sun heats up this earth that would otherwise be cold, what the psalmist is saying is, Lord, give us our supply because the world that we live in It's dangerous and it's hard. Give us be a shield. This longing for protection. When we buy cars, we look at crash test ratings. We wear seat belts, right? We put apps on our phones to track our children. We have apps to track internet, to keep us safe on the internet. We set up alerts to alert us when credit cards are spent so that we can know if we're being uh, taken advantage of. We set alarms in our homes to keep us at night. We're a we're creatures who pursue safety. And so when he prays, Lord, be a shield. What he's actually communicating is the world that we are in is unsafe. Do you find yourself longing for these things in the dump? Divine satisfaction, divine strength, divine safety, divine supply. We should want them because the opposite is true about this world and us here as we wait. Here's what C.S. Lewis says about longings. Do not ignore those longings. Creatures are not born with longings unless satisfaction for those desires exists. A baby feels hunger where there is a such thing as food. A duckling wants to swim where there is a such thing as water. Humans feel sexual desire where there is a such thing as sex if i find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy the most probable explanation is that i was made for another world you hear what lewis is saying don't suppress your longing for safety don't suppress your longing for connection with god don't suppress your longing for supply don't suppress those things rather let them teach you and tell you what you're really after and here's the thing you can't get enough alarms to keep you safe forever it's meant to say these things find fulfillment from another world which is our last point Our anointed king satisfies us while we wait until the day that he will return and bring an ending to your waiting. And I'm getting this from verse 9. You'll notice, y'all, right nestled in this psalm, and it it looks kind of like out of place, but notice it's a prayer. He's like, Lord, give, give, hear my prayer. Give ear, O God of Jacob. Behold our ship. Well, what, what are you praying for? Here's the prayer. Look on the face of your anointed. That word for anointed is a word we get Messiah from. So all of a sudden, this psalmist bursts out in prayer, prayer for a king. Now, why in the world, in the midst of all of this, would he pray for a king? Here's why. If we read our American grid onto this text, we miss it. But if we let the Bible shape what we see, then we get it. In Israel's history, people like Joseph or Esther or Daniel had the ears of kings. And when they had the ears of kings, they could forecast famine, and when Joseph is working with Pharaoh and forecasting famine because God gives him this ability to interpret dreams, guess what happens to the rest of Israel? All of Israel is fair, right? Think about Deuteronomy where it says Israel's king is supposed to write a copy of the law and read it so that his heart is not lifted up so that he might set the tone for the rest of the nation. Think about David as king who goes out and fights Goliath as a covenant representative. The, the way that we interpret that, that passage is not be like David and go slay your giants. The way that we interpret that passage is we are like Israel and we need a king who is mighty, who will go into battle, who himself will defeat even death. And so think about what happens to Israel when their covenant king representative goes out and does battle. They get to walk in the safety of his work think about David when he captures Jerusalem and he brings the ark of the covenant back to it think about David a king who is dancing and praising and worshiping the Lord think about Israel's kings when they went to war and led them in battle they protected them from warring nations think about Israel's king like David and Solomon who wanted to build a temple For the worship of the Lord, because they had rest. Think about Israel's king, Solomon, who, because of the wisdom given to him, begins to to, to handle and settle cases of injustice where these two women are arguing over a dead baby and a live baby, and they go to the king, and the king, with his wisdom, brings about justice in the land. You see what they're actually asking for? Lord, send us someone who is sacrificial. Send us someone who will build a temple that is indestructible. Send us someone who will lay down his life. Send us someone who delights in your courts. Send us someone who loves your word. That what he's actually praying for, family, is Jesus. He's saying, Lord, look after his face. Send us a man after your heart. Send us one who will go to battle. Send us one who will meet our needs. Send us one who will satisfy us with his presence send us one who cares about us and even the birds and the lilies of the field and the flowers like send us one whose kingdom is big and is encompassing and you know what that's a prayer that God answered God says yes you you writer of Psalm 84 I'm looking on this anointed one and I'm gonna send him and he is beautiful it's why when we read about Jesus he loved the house of the Lord When his family left to go back home, the boy Jesus was back at the temple. He says, Mommy, Daddy, did you not know I need to be in my father's house? And when this man is a middle-aged man, he goes back into his father's house because the zeal of his love for the house of God consumes him. Jesus says, the sparrow does not fall to the ground in my kingdom that the father does not see. He says, "Look at the lilies of the field and the birds of the air that need to sow nor reap, but I tell you, right? Your father feeds them and clothes them." He says, "The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, and when it grows, it grows to this big tree so that the birds of heaven even find nest there." Jesus says, "I'm the one who sees the sparrow. I'm the one who pays attention to the swallow. In this Jesus, we have a king who turns our tearful journey into joy unshakable. It's why there's a textual thing going on right there in verse six, where it says, as they walk through the valley of Baca, they make it a place of springs. The Septuagint and other, uh, ma- other Hebrew texts, Hebrew manuscripts, don't translate it as though the pilgrims make it a place of springs. They translate it. As God makes it a place of springs in other words as you go through the hard seasons God himself takes your tears and God himself gives you joy and God himself prospers you even in the valley of the shadow of death and Jesus, we have access to a throne of grace wherever we are because the temple he built is indestructible. Jesus says, "Destroy this temple, and in three days, I'll raise it back up. Where is the temple of God now? It's Christ, and he will never be destroyed, ever again. And what about those enduring discipline? God remembers your frame, and he knows that you're dust. His discipline is not forever. You want to know why? Because you're a son and not a slave. How are all these things true for us, beloved? It's because Jesus, our good king, makes them true. Jesus gives us satisfaction and safety and supply. Jesus withholds no good thing from us. He satisfies us with himself. Jesus had no place to lay his head so that you can forever lay yours on the pillow of God's love. Jesus walked through the valley of weeping. To make your life, however hard it gets, a place of springs. Jesus hung on a cross and said, I thirst that you and I may ever drink of his goodness. Jesus yielded all of his strength in order to make you and I strong. Jesus says, I will give you power from on high. I will not leave you as orphans. The work that I've started in you, I will complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. Jesus says, my heart and my flesh and my soul, they truly fainted so that we can live. He was cut off from the eternal community of the Father and the Spirit to bring us into fellowship with." our triune God. And there's something in this passage that is beautiful. Notice the shift in pronouns. He goes from my soul, my soul, my God, I would rather. But right there in the middle, he talks about blessed are those whose strength is in you as they go through the valley of Baca. They go from strength to strength. In other words, what I think is happening there, you will not go through the valley of weeping by yourself and be strong. jesus gives strength himself and jesus gives us the body and as we go through this valley of tears with each other and dwell by the spirit living in community Forgiving and forbearing and restoring and speaking truth and love and growing into the one who is the head. Here is what God says. That is how God strengthens you. It's by his spirit at work in you, but it's also your connection to the broader community where you are not on no man's land. These are all gifts from Christ to us and he traveled that road that highway to Golgotha alone so that you and I will never travel that path you see I have a sneaking suspicion what we really want when we're living in the dump is more of him When we trust him and rest in his goodness, he satisfies us, he stabilizes us, he heals us until he brings us home. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we bless your name and I pray this week, Lord, as we experience these longings for satisfaction and safety and supply, I pray that we will train our hearts to say what we're really after is nothing that can be found in this world. What we really are after is something from you and through you. And so, Father, stabilize your people. And I pray for those, Lord, who don't know you, as they see all of these things that are pulling in their lives, if they see the, uh, the, the, the hard life that we're living in this hard lot, I pray that they would see that there is nothing in this earth that satisfies. It must come from Christ. May they run to him and trust in him and bow the knee for your glory, we pray. Amen.